Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cut to the Chase. So if you've been following this podcast, you might have heard my interview a while back with Frank Tarantino, who runs the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, or is it administration? I could never. Administration. Thank you. My guest, who I will introduce to you soon, talking about the fentanyl crisis and what can be done about it. And it feels like, you know, Sisyphus had it easier dealing with fentanyl than the DEA in this country. And the thing that I find so interesting about fentanyl is, well really tragic, is it affects the United States much more than it does similar countries like Australia or Europe. The statistics are staggering. We've heard them so many times, about 150 deaths a day from fentanyl in the United States. In 2022, just last year, fentanyl was linked to 71,000 deaths in America. Of all the ODs in the United States, 70% involve fentanyl, and it's the top cause of death among adults 18 to 45 here in, in the United States. Now, these are numbers. We hear about the numbers. We pause. We sigh. We think, oh, Lord, what's happening? But, you know, you have to remind yourself. I try to remind myself anyway that there are real human beings and families and communities that are behind the numbers, that make up the numbers. And so I wanted to bring in my friend, Carol Trottier, who is a PR maven. We actually worked together off and on over the past several years. She lost her son, who was 30, so he's right in that sweet spot of that age range, 18 to 45, 30 years old, died of a heroin-slash-fentanyl overdose in 2018. And Carol, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about this, because I know it can't be easy. Thank you, Laura, and I really appreciate you putting a focus on the subject. So we know how deadly this is. Two milligrams can kill. That's basically the tip of a very sharp pencil, 50 times stronger than heroin, 100 times stronger than morphine. It can be mixed with heroin, cocaine. It's in nasal sprays and vapes. In fact, there was news recently about a 13-year-old boy in Georgia who had a vape with fentanyl in it, and now he's brain damaged. We hear about little babies getting a hold of this. Why, Carol, have you decided, and you've been become an activist in the past several months, you've gotten both Nassau and Suffolk to have Narcan stocked with AEDs in county buildings. That's huge. Why the activism now? That's a very good question because my son died this month. It'll be five years. So April someone, 8th, right? April 8th. So people might say, you know, what have you been doing all that time? And I've really just been too devastated to really think outside of, you know, my own misery, to put it um, succinctly. But I got invited to a DEA summit last fall, 
I don't know how I got the email. I'm still puzzled. Like it was divine intervention. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go to that. And I didn't know anybody. I just took the train into the DEA office. And it was a summit really for grieving parents. I mean, parents who have really been personally affected by the fentanyl. And special agent Frank Tarantino, he's like my hero. So glad you had him on the Hmm. show. It's a funny coincidence. Yeah, it was. And he hosted the whole thing. I mean, he was there for hours. It was like you, I never saw... There was such caring in all the agents that were mm. there. I mean, here are these, these government. It was almost like being at the FBI when you're in the building. It's all top security. And they were so compassionate and caring. And so they really updated us on all kinds of things. I mean, I'd like to think of myself as a smart person, but there was a lot I didn't know. And also the statistics with the fentanyl that now with these counterfeit pills, which is like a 911 May Day emergency with these counterfeit pills has really changed the game. And after I left there, but basically what they were trying to do is recruit us, the parents, to be like deputized to go hmm. out and educate and create awareness. And when I heard that, I was like, I can do that. I mean, I was in public relations communications all my life. It was like, I know I can do that. So I really, I left there just feeling, you know, I really had a purpose. I didn't hadn't felt that I had a purpose the past five years, but I I left there with determination and, and you know making plans and thinking and my PR brain was going and so that's kind of how I got into the activism really just since the last fall. So that's interesting. I didn't realize that this was that Frank Tarantino held this to sort of deputize families. And you talk you've talked about that you've become an expert in grief. And you talk about the and sort of grief now we were just saying before has kind of become the thing to talk about since COVID. And you also talk about something that you call the spider web of grief. What do you mean by that? Well, when someone loses a child, you, you know, you immediately think of the parents. Right. So when you when you said those numbers before of 70,000 p- people died. Right. So I can do a little math. That's a hundred and forty thousand parents that were affected but then there's siblings and there's grandparents and there's friends. And, you know, that changes young person's life when they had a friend die at the ages that you are reading about, that young people are dying from 16 to, you know, 20s, 30s. That affects their life going forward that they had their best friend died. I'm still in touch with Alex's best friend now and, and all his friends, but I know it's really affected them. So that spider web of grief and the weight that people are asked to carry then going forward for the rest of their lives. I feel like the fentanyl crisis has created this like giant legion of grieving parents that I hope no one's going to ignore them or be afraid to talk to them or people need to know how to relate to people that have lost a child and are grieving because that's a terrible burden that we're all carrying forward. You know, that's such an interesting point. Do you find people get nervous about it around you? Absolutely. Not my good friends, but you really learn a lot about people and behavior when you've suffered such a a tragic loss. Sometimes the people that you think would be right there for you are not. Mm. And other times people that you like a coworker at work. I remember when I finally went back to work, you know, it was just a, a coworker. It wasn't someone I socialized with outside of work. She would come into the office and hug me every day. Mm. So like people really surprise you of, you know, another person in my life would send me a card in the mail just for months afterwards. Wow. As opposed to, you know, 
the funeral's over. See you later. Let's right. we're not going to talk about it anymore. And I guess you're over it. Yeah. And Which, I feel awkward and I don't know what to say. Right. So what would your advice be to people who feel awkward? They don't know what to say. Well, I've really tapped into a couple great resources that I just stumbled on. One was called whatsyourgrief.com. Mm. And what I love about it, they had like the worst things people have ever said to people <laughs> who've been grieving. And then nice things to say to people. And if you don't know what to say, you know, even just being there at present, if you're afraid you're going to say something stupid, just being present mm -hmm. and or just checking in with someone or, you know, do you want to go for a ride? I'm going, you know, I'm going up here. I'm going there. Would you like to come with me? Not saying anything and just sort of um, not calling the person or ever visiting. That's really not that the way to go. And it's really hard to correct people. I'm the worst with that. I hate confrontation because mm -hmm. I have some people in my life that basically after my son's funeral, never really mentioned him again. Mm. And I wish I had a little more courage to just say, you know, that that's really not what I would like. I would like us to talk about him at the holidays. I would like you yeah. to mention his name or some funny story. Yeah, it's okay to talk about it. Absolutely. I think parents really, you know, they like that. They get a lot of comfort from it. Do you find with some of the other parents that you talk to that there is shame about how their child or family member died, that, that somehow it's, it's a reflection on their failure as a parent? Well, that's like a two-part question. I think most of the people I surround myself with now, which I'm in a couple groups with other grieving parents, they're not filled with the shame, but I've heard stories of people who actually didn't even put in or, or admit when their child died of an overdose, did not even admit like at the funeral that that's what the child died of. Hmm. I mean, I feel really sorry for someone that chooses to approach it that way, because I think, you know, you can't bury that grief and then you're just going to bury that. And that is it's almost like a dishonor to the child, too, because just kind of the lying yeah. it almost reminds me of like when aids yeah. was you know that's right first came into being and people would be ashamed to say what someone died of um that doesn't help anybody but what was the second part of the question oh i don't remember well, i'm sure it was a brilliant question right, okay, but well, i'm sorry um, no it's okay we'll come back to it i have to get in the habit of just asking one question at a time <laughs> note to self so when you, I mean, there's fentanyl obviously has been in the news a lot lately. I mean, a lot of other stuff is going on too. So, so perhaps it gets buried. But you know, you know, I just read recently that in the past six months, 25 million fentanyl pills were found, you know, seized at one border crossing. Right. That's just, just what one. they found, it's... and that's just what they found. So it's this whole deluge coming through. We know how it works, and maybe this is why it affects America more than Europe or Australia. The chemicals are sent from China and now India to the Jalisco New Generation and Sinaloa Hotels in Mexico. They make it. Yeah. And it's hard. It's cheap to make. There's no planting of poppies or harvesting of coca plants. There's nothing like that. You can make it in a lab. It's cheap. It's, it's tiny. And it's easy to transport. They tuck it inside produce or inside, you know, boxes of shirts right. or whatever it may be. Do you have a sense of... <sighs> you know, we barely have our finger in the dike in stopping this? Yeah, I think that's a good description. I think it is. It's overwhelming. And six out of 10 of those pills that you're talking about have enough fentanyl to kill somebody. I mean, you just do the math and think of those millions of pills coming into the country. But the United States consumes 80 percent 
of the drugs in the world. Really? All of them. And we're only one of two countries that advertise pharmaceuticals on television. So, you know, we we definitely have a big issue with with drugs in this country. But just to, you know, focus on the fentanyl, it's a whole different game than, say, if you go back in time to when people did heroin, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. Yeah. Overdoses were when you took too much. Now the fentanyl is poisoning you. So the DEA is actually calling them poisonings. They don't call them overdoses anymore. So I always like to, when I Mm. talk about what happened to my son, I always like to say he died of a heroin fentanyl poisoning because this isn't an intentional thing that the people think they're taking or using. The pills, I think, are a real game changer in a bad way because they're so convenient. You're talking about kids at a party or kids in a dorm room that want to stay up late to study and someone says, you know, I have an Adderall and it's an, it's a counterfeit pill. It's not someone saying I'm going to go in the bathroom and put, you know, shoot heroin into my arm anymore. It's these little convenient pills. Some of them are different colors. They make fake counterfeit Xanax, Adderall, Percocet. And you just imagine being a young person yeah. at a party. Um, you, you can't take that. There's no playing Russian roulette anymore with these pills because... You know, it it will kill you. And I've heard some tragic stories from parents who said, you know, their 16 year old took like half a pill because, you know, they had an injury or something and a friend gave them what they thought was half a Percocet or something. And, you know, and they were dead from from even half a pill. A lot of kids take Adderall now to stay up late to finish their papers or whatever. In my day, maybe we would have a no dose or a cup of coffee. (laughs) Just to do the all-nighter, but now it's they go to Adderall, they go to Ritalin, and this stuff is being sold. The other thing that's really alarming now is if you go to the DEA website, they have a page with all of the emojis that are used for advertising oh, on things like Snapchat that right. disappears, even boring old person's Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, and you know, different emojis designate different drugs, different strengths. And it's really hard to track. It's really hard to in, to go after these people, these predators. It really, it's it's really frightening to think that, you know, a person could just send a text message to somebody or go on a site and order drugs that sometimes get mailed to the house or, you know, where am I going to meet up with you? It, it doesn't take a lot of effort anymore either. Yeah. You know, we you've talked about poisoning instead of calling it overdose. There's a lot of change in how people refer to, quote, addict. You know, we don't say addict anymore. Apparently, chemical dependency. Or or drug use disorder. Drug use disorder as opposed to substance abuse. How do you feel about that? Do you think that matters? Do you Um, think these words matter? Or is that overdone? No, I think it it is something that starts, needs to start transitioning a little into maybe some kinder language and Mm. also the image. I think... You know, we all have the image from television and maybe personal experience of what was considered a drug addict, someone, you know, in the alley shooting a needle in their arm. And, you know, this is a sickness. This is an illness. And we really need to start, I think, just using maybe some kinder words. Sometimes I I do wince when people say, oh, you know, that guy's a drug addict. And I, Mm. I do. It affects me a little to think. I certainly hope people don't think of my son or, you know, any of these, these young people who have died from this, because, you know, that was like one thing that they were one thing. Mm -hmm. There were a million other things. And my son was a licensed welder. You know, he wasn't 
like unemployed, sitting up in his room doing drugs. He was he was working. And all these kids that I when I talked to their parents, you know, they were functioning. They had jobs. And you think what a heartbreak it is to think that all those lives are snuffed out and we don't know what they could have contributed to the world. I mean, we're talking huge numbers, Laura, like a war more more than died in the Vietnam War. These are young lives that have been ended. And what could they have contributed? What would they have discovered? You know, what what music would have been written or, you know, books yeah, or, or inventions? Exactly. And so it, it's very heartbreaking. And I think that part of the reason why people aren't necessarily responding to this crisis is because of that image of, oh, mm. they're just drug addicts. I'm not going to worry too much about it. When I went to the DEA summit, the New York City medical examiner, his name Jason Graham, he said, if not for the COVID pandemic, we would be looking at this as the worst public health crisis in our lifetime. And that, when I heard him say that, I was like, well, why, why isn't anyone acting like it? Yeah. Now, of course, the DEA is acting like it. I think there are some media outlets that are paying very good attention to it. But a part of my job to be a little annoying to people is that I... I don't hesitate to call some of my local papers and say, you know, stop enough with the catalytic converters. How about yeah. how about paying a little more attention to this? Number one health crisis. Let's start treating it like that. But I think that part of that stigma that you're talking about makes a majority of people, you know, I can just imagine moms sitting at home and thinking oh, that that doesn't affect me. My kids are good. I don't have to worry about them doing drugs or taking pills at a party. You know what? Wake up. You do. because. And it might not even be like for fun. It might just be to do homework right? or exactly. I feel some depressed or whatever or, it is. I mean, some legitimately has an injury or something right. but just doesn't take a prescription medication. Yeah. Well, what you say about the guy from the DEA, also the Department of Homeland Security says this fentanyl specifically is the biggest threat to America right now. And think of everything we're talking about, democracy in China. Yes. This is the biggest threat I know. to and our people that's right why now. I, I'm very puzzled, but I think I'm answering my own question. I think the reason it's not always being treated as the 911 May Day emergency, I like to call it, is because people have that image of they're just drug addicts. Just like, again, with the AIDS crisis, Mm -hmm. it took a long time for that to reach the height of 911 emergency. That's right. Because, oh, it's gay people. It's shame. There's something shameful about um, it. Why should I worry about it? That doesn't affect me. I only wish people would get as just, you know, focused on this as they did with COVID and wiping down their groceries and wearing yeah. a mask. Just yeah. even people, if it doesn't affect your family personally, it's just good to be aware of what's out there. And I don't, I don't think there could be anyone left on Long Island right now who doesn't know somebody who knows somebody. Someone down the block lost a nephew, someone, grandparent lost a grandchild. Again, the spider web it really reaches everybody. Yeah. Think about their teachers, you know, I mean, all these people. So Alex was your only child. Yes. And tell it he was a welder. From what I understand, he was going to go to Illinois for a new job. Yeah, he had a new job. It was starting like a month in May, the year he died. And those people, I had to inform them and they were so sweet. They sent like a contribution to Seafield, which is a a rehab hmm. in a place out in the Hamptons because I, that's all I had asked for, you know, at his funeral. Mm. So what was he like? What kind of young man was um, he? He was, well, my son, well, he was very funny. Was I like he? to say he, 
inherited my sense of humor. <laughs> He's very funny. He loved music. He was an incredible friend to all his friends. Like he would sacrifice something for himself, for his friends, and always seemed to have a girlfriend, even when he didn't have a job or a car. I don't know. So he was very handsome. And but he also suffered from depression on and off. You know, I don't think any parent who's had a child that died from a, a drug overdose would say, oh, it came out of nowhere. You know, yeah. I had a lot of struggles with him, a lot of challenges. He, he was often depressed, you know, never really diagnosed, even though, man, I dragged him everywhere. Uh, you know, one person said he's bipolar. Mm. He never really liked to take the prescription medicine. I don't like the way it makes me feel. So it was a lot of struggles. But what's so puzzling is, you know, when he did die, I felt like he was doing really well. And which makes me believe that that was just kind of a one off little thing that he did. It wasn't like something he was doing every day. But, you know, I'll never know that everything. I'm sure every parent has a lot of questions that never get answered. I remember your other question. It was oh, about <laughs> do parents, you know, do like they blame themselves yes. or something like that? It might not have been exactly how you yeah, asked no, it. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I can only speak for myself. And I blame I I replay everything in my yeah. head. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a very common thing, but I think it is based on. My experience. I, yeah. I think of everything. I should have yelled louder, not yelled as much. I should have mm -hmm. pushed harder, not pushed as much. I just think I did everything wrong, even though I know I did some things right. You know, your number one job as a parent is to love and protect your kid. And I feel like yeah, I failed. It's really hard to know as a parent whether you're doing too much or you're doing not enough, how much to intrude, how much to let them just figure it out themselves. And, and I don't know if you're ever really going to get it right. You do the best you can with what you got. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do say sometimes like Alex was 30. So, you know, you're talking about a man. He's he a was, man. He was living in my house at the time. But, you know, was I going through his belongings and, his, you know, his drawers and looking through stuff? I didn't. And I could kick myself now. But but that's appropriate for a 30 year old right. child, adult. Well, an adult child is very different. If it's a teenager. Right. OK, maybe you will go through their stuff. But I know. So, I, of course, I I'm not done beating myself up with guilt. Yet. Yeah. I don't know if in uh, years from now. Do you but, think you'll be able to forgive yourself? Um, I don't know. Yeah. So you're taking this and you're putting it into advocacy. So we talked about the municipal buildings in Nassau and yes. Suffolk. And what other things can you do? Well, I like to talk about the Narcan a lot because it, every time I get a Narcan kit into a parent's hands, I think, I hope they never have to use it. But, you know, there's one more chance that they could save a life or, you know, they have it. I also just think it's really important to talk to as many people as I can about it, whether it's just one-on-one -on -one with somebody or a, a group. So I'm also working with the Suffolk County Police Department. I'll just give you a little background. That last fall for my son's birthday, it, he would have been 35. I wanted to do something different because I had been doing a scholarship and I was like, yeah, it's just not doing anything for me. Nobody mm. says thank you. I'm like, what? But anyway, mm -hmm. it was a welding scholarship. So I thought I'd rather give like food away or money to people and just have them come remember Alex. So it kind of morphed into a pizza party at his favorite pizza place in Stony Brook, Station Pizza. I, I gave the guys there, I said, you know, a free slice of pizza and a soda. I'll pay for the first hundred people that come in here. It wasn't a lot of money. They gave me a great bargain. 
And then I had the Suffolk County Police Department come and did Narcan training. They'd never done Narcan training at a pizza place before. <laughs> and the guy was like, where am I going to do it? And I will sit up in this booth. And they trained nearly 50 people that day on Narcan just that walked in. They weren't necessarily people that knew me or knew Alex. Some of them just walked in off the street. So the Suffolk County Police Department said we loved doing that like intimate, small scale training. They felt it just was a great idea. So now I'm working with a, an officer, Bridget Topping, where we're trying to reach out to other parents who have lost children. Let's say they do a run for their kid every year. They maybe do a barbecue. Maybe they have a block party. Whatever they do, the Suffolk County Police Department would send someone that could just do that same kind of little intimate Narcan training. That's great. That's a really good thing. So what else? Any other any other plans? Um, well, I, I'm like to talk to a group. I, I'm talking to some groups just about my experience. I really like to reach out to parents and make sure they know that there's a lot of support groups available for grieving parents, because I never would have got through without, I went to a, a support group called GRASP. It's Grief Recovery After a Substance Passing. They're on graspHelp.org if anyone wants to look for a local meeting. And I did that once a month. In the beginning, I did one-on-one -on -one therapy, but after a while you get to, all right, you know, I've gone as far as I can with that and mm -hmm. I was ready to hear other people's problems. So I, I like to just advocate for, you know, there's lots of help available. Uh, otherwise, for me, I'm just... I feel like I want to make some noise. I want to defend the whole awareness day is May 9th. May 9th. Okay. So that's I'm already plotting and planning. What can I do? I'm working with this organization called LICAD, which is Long Island Coalition uh, Against uh, Alcohol and Drug Dependency. Yeah, that's a great organization. Yeah. yeah. And sort of just, you know, brainstorming again, just to bring awareness, try to get the media there talking about it. We shouldn't say, oh, we talked about that last month. Well, People didn't stop dying since last month, That's so right. let's keep talking about it. So I'm just my goal now is just to keep the conversation going, make sure people are still paying attention to it. I'd really like to go to some schools, which we have a few things planned with LICAD, to go into schools and just give a presentation to students and their parents. I think it's so important that you're doing this. Because when I read the news, I see the news, it makes me feel hopeless that this this flood is coming in and we're not armed. We're just like naive little, you know, baby deer yeah. just naively going about our lives. And this is wreaking havoc on so many of our lives. Do you ever get that sense of hopelessness with this flood of drugs coming in? Yes, it's. You know, I talk about the spider web, but then I have another analogy. I like it's like it's like a tree. Like, I don't know where to start. There's like the border issues. There's the relationship with China. Why are we not getting tougher on them mm -hmm. to say, stop sending this stuff to mm -hmm. Mexico? And, you know, there's the criminal justice uh, aspect of the branch mm -hmm. of um, are we being tough enough on people that are caught selling the pills you're right. There are a lot of branches. Think about that. It's, Our relationship with China. And I was reading in the paper recently that, you know, the United States has some relationships with some of these suppliers and they don't want to jeopardize those relationships. They don't want to jeopardize the money. Yeah. And then we have. And you we're know, just sitting ducks. And we have mental health issues where why, you know, to well, get to yes. the, the crux of it, why are so many young people 
reaching for the drugs and That's getting involved with the drugs. The most important question. What is it about our culture right now that yes. so many kids are depressed, helpless, hopeless, anxious, anxious? Yeah, my son had a lot of anxiety. And I wish I had the answer to that. I like to blame Video games, I like to... Yeah, I mean, social media, that's there, my go-to. There weren't, there weren't cell phones back when my son was growing up, but that's when the Game Boy first came out. I, yeah. I don't know the answer. I wish I did. Instant it's gratification, so the, def the the inability to suffer a little bit and get over it. I don't, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what it is. So I hope there's some people out there that are much smarter than me trying to figure it out because yeah. it is an overwhelming problem and people get very distracted by a lot of other issues right now i mean there's no shortage of problems right now it's like a you know a menu you just pick what you want to talk about yeah but there's you know every parent that's lost a child would say that this is the number one problem right now it's it's really tragic to think we're, we're losing a, a generation of young bright you know people that as i said who, who knows what they could contribute to the world Carol Trottier, I want to thank you so much for coming on Cut to the Chase. I know that it can't be easy, and I just want you to know that I'm really grateful for you and for your advocacy. Thank you very much for having me.